Looking for a unique gift? A new piece of art for your collection? Or a signed copy of my book? Head on over to FelixEddy.com. That's www.felixeddy.com. Thank you. Hi. I'm David McLean, the creator of this podcast. Uh, if you're listening to this episode, uh, it might make more sense if you went back and listen to the first episode. That's why this one is called Two. Anyway, thanks for listening. I, I really appreciate it. Hi, you're listening to WXYZ Live from the island of Santiago, and this is the Time Traveler's News and World Report. Time traveling news and information for the discerning time traveler from any timeline. I'm Fergus McCartney. Today's approximate aggregate date is the E squared of May 3202. Happy Irrational Sunday. Now here's the post apocalyptic report. Our big story tonight comes from the sports desk. The 1927 Yankees staged an incredible upset, defeating the 2004 Boston Red Sox in an exhibition game here on the island of San Tampo, one to nothing. The sole run came off a bunt from Lou Gehrig, who was able to take advantage of disorganization in the Red Sox dugout and run the bases. Apparently, the Red Sox had seen the Yankees were smoking and decided to do the same, unaware that the thing the Yankees were smoking was tobacco. Both teams celebrated by visiting Don Giovanni's devilishly delicious ice cream bar in central Santiago. The Time Travelers Resort and Museum has received a grant from the Roman Empire to build a new wing to the museum dedicated to the growing future of the Roman Empire. Museum creator Phaedra, daughter of Minos, has been quoted as saying, I won't tell them if you don't. Groundbreaking ceremonies with Emperor Hadrian are scheduled for next week. A search warrant for some stolen liquid time has also turned up a stolen clock. The clock is a 16th century pendulum power device which had previously been the final resting place of a skeleton with a crown wielded to its skull whose numbers are running backwards. Its owners say they are grateful to have it back but wish to remain anonymous. That's the post-apocalyptic report for this morning. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. And now we present the infinitely spiraling clock. The continuing story of one man lost in time. The Sphinx. There wasn't any doubt about what it was, but Keith couldn't believe it just the same. A Sphinx? He asked. Are you serious? The dragon, who was taller and had sharper eyes than the airplane pilot, grunted approvingly. The body of a lion, the torso and head of a woman. The wings of an eagle, he confirmed. Keith shook his head. I don't suppose there's any point in telling you that they aren't supposed to exist either. You keep saying that, the dragon observed. You may want to rethink your expectations. What do you know about them? Keith asked. The dragon thought about this for a while. They supposedly like riddles. It'll ask you one if you get it wrong. It will kill you. And if I answer it right, Keith asked. It will kill itself, or so the story goes, the dragon answered. A bit of overacting on its part, if you ask me. Is there a version of this story that doesn't involve anyone killing anyone, Keith wondered out loud. There could be, the dragon suggested hopefully. But it's not a story that I've heard. Keith spat. 
How long will it take until it arrives? he asked. The dragon squinted at the horizon. I suspect that it will be here within the hour, he said. Your fire may have attracted it. Keith paused, then he massaged his temples, then he looked up and cursed the sky. I don't suppose we could simply run away from this thing, he asked in a tone that implied he already knew the answer. The dragon used a ducal claw to scratch behind his ear. Well, you could run, and then I could fly away. It would only follow one of us, and I have a feeling you're the weak fawn in this scenario. It would eat you, and then I would fly off towards the sea. You may not be as big a supporter of this plan as I am. Keith took off his satchel and dumped it on the ground. It was quite full. It contained a wallet, several coins in various currencies, a pack of tissues, a handmade cell phone constructed of clock parts, some tea bags, a 22nd century sentient microscanner, bothersome piece of equipment. Whenever you scan something, it told you what it was and then it told you what it thought of it. His American passport, a spool of copper wire, a bowie knife, and a large handkerchief. What are you doing? the dragon asked. Inventorying my resources, Keith said. I need to convince that creature to leave us alone. I have a feeling that my charming personality alone isn't going to do that. The dragon eyed the contents of the satchel. You think something there will help us to do that? he asked. I am thinking that of our limited options, fighting our way out is probably the worst choice. Keith Quick looked up at the palm trees over their heads. Pass me one of those coconuts up there, would you? he asked. The dragon grabbed a coconut in its teeth and put it down at Keith's feet. Your theory is that the coconut is going to help us with this endeavor? he asked. As with everything else in this life, I am making it up as I go along, Keith admitted. Don't worry, though. It almost always turns out all right. The Sphinx, as any student of Greek myth will tell you, is a creature with the torso of a woman, the wings of an eagle, and the body of a cat. What they do not usually tell you is that it is almost ten feet tall. Keith Quick was not yet aware of this, but he had a feeling that having your back half borrowed from a member of the cat family would probably lead to some unpleasant dating opportunities. This wasn't particularly helpful in dealing with the creature at the onset, but it had given Keith an idea. Perhaps the Sphinx might be grumpy. This might not seem outwardly helpful either, but it was good to know what you were up against. Picking up the coconut, he cracked it open using the bowie knife and scooped the inside out. The results were crude but effective. It might not be the queen's china, but it would work as a cup or bowl. He flattened out the edges with his knife. It was rough, but it would serve. He scooped some spring water into the handmade bowl and held it over the fire. Ah! Keith shouted, pulling his hand out of the fire quickly. The bowl was functional, but it lacked a handle. The dragon sighed. Give it here, he said. Keith put the coconut on the ground. The dragon leaned over and, with surprising control, blew a blast of hot fire over the top of the cup. 
When he was finished, a hot steam rose off the top of the water. My mother used to do that with my hot cocoa, except she was trying to cool it down, Keith observed. What exactly is it that you're trying to do? The dragon asked. I have a feeling that regardless of what the Sphinx's bottom half might be, her heart and soul are those of a woman, Keith explained, so I'm brewing something that might soothe her feminine side. What is it? The dragon asked. It's called tea, Keith said simply. The Sphinx approached with the confidence of a southern belle combined with the stealth of a panther. Keith was glad the dragon had realized that the Sphinx was there. He wouldn't have discovered her until she was asking him a riddle. Even so, as it broke through the palm trees, he had to turn to face her suddenly. Hello, he said brightly. Keith gave the creature the sort of friendly wave that you would usually say for an old friend coming over for dinner. The Sphinx eyed the dragon and the man cautiously. Judging by the look in her eyes, she didn't think that the dragon was intimidating enough to stop her. Keith thought that her front half looked like his Aunt Esther when she was in a bad mood, and the back half looked like the calico that had lived in his father's barn when he was a boy, provided, of course, that either one had grown into a height of about three meters. I'd hate to be the one who cleaned out the litter box, he thought. I have a question for you, the Sphinx said. What? What soars without wings and sees without eyes but never goes home? Keith finished for her. Sorry, already heard that one. The Sphinx glared. That was not my question, she hissed. No, Keith admitted, but it's a good one, don't you think? The Sphinx narrowed her eyes. My question, she repeated, is where is the end of a golden ring? Keith didn't consider his answer for even a second. Has it occurred to you that riddles is a game that most people don't consider a life or death transaction? He asked. You might want to try chess or connect four. Do not test my patience, human, the Sphinx hissed. I am not someone to be trifled with. And my life is a trifling, Keith said. Why not leave me with it? Here, I'll give you something for your trouble. He held out the handmade cup. Drink this, he suggested. The Sphinx didn't know what to make of this at all. She leaned over the drink and peered into it. Keith could tell that she was wondering if it was poisoned. Go on, he said. It won't hurt you. He had said nothing with which to convince her but the tone of his voice. He had to hope that he sounded sincere. For a moment, his life hung in the balance. The Sphinx could have easily thrown the hot tea in his face, asked him another riddle, and then proceeded to what would have certainly proven to be the messier part of the transaction. However, at that moment, the Sphinx seemed to decide that Keith was trustworthy and took a delicate sip of the tea. Keith watched as the warmth spread from her mouth to the rest of her body. This 
is pure ambrosia, the Sphinx said encouragingly. Keith nodded. I'm glad you like it. The Sphinx drank some more tea. A fog that had been hanging over her head seemed to lift. I have done terrible things, she admitted somewhat guiltily. The dragon seemed to take this as his cue to jump into the conversation. Haven't we all? he said knowingly. It all seems petty in retrospect, the Sphinx admitted. Anger has a tendency to work that way, the dragon said. Always seems like the right thing to do, right up until the moment that it stops. I ate a whole family once because they didn't answer a riddle correctly, the Sphinx said with a sorrowful glance down into her tea. I asked them the one about the truthful Blackfoot and the lying Whitefoot. I think that's supposed to go the other way around, Keith observed. Oh, the Sphinx said, an even guiltier look spreading across her face. They might have gotten it right then. Anyway, I was hungry. The dragon put a wing around her shoulder. We all make mistakes, he said. Tell me, the Sphinx said, draining the last of her tea. Where can I find more of this sweet liquid? It's brewed from a leaf that grows on the shores of India, Keith said, doing his best to make the subcontinent sound like a wild and exotic place. The journey is far, but it's all over land. You would be worshipped there as a goddess. A present was made of the last of the tea, with instructions to follow the desert until she hit the Persian Gulf, and then follow the coast. Keith suspected that in two days' time the effect of the caffeine in the tea would wear off, and she would be just as homicidal as she ever was. But they would be out of reach by then, which was something anyway. The Sphinx thanked them, and then she flew off into the approaching night. Just for the record, Keith said, you could have lit her up like a candle, right? In two seconds flat, the dragon said. Thank you for not making me do that, though. It would have been a shame to cook her. She might have been evil, but she was a thing of beauty. That was how they made their way across the desert, by talking to people, making gifts, avoiding conflict and negotiating peace. Slowly the pair of them moved west, and as they traveled, words of their deeds usually traveled ahead of them. Although they never raised a hand to anyone, the stories often forgot this, and instead a legend spread. A pale-faced stranger dressed all in leather, from a land at the end of time. Fear him, fear him above all others. He has tamed the mighty dragon. Such was Helen's introduction to the secret world of her father. In some ways it matched the man she knew, and in some ways it didn't. It was hard to imagine her father as a young man. But of course, just like anyone else, he was getting older one day at a time. She had a million questions for spring, the answer to most of which was, Yes, love, we'll get to that. Which eventually, they did. Thank <laughs> you.
Somewhere in France, Keith stood on top of the grass hill and shielded his eyes from the sun. You're absolutely sure that you can see the ocean, he asked. The dragon fluttered his wings. I had to fly almost up to the clouds, but I could see it, a thin strip of blue-gray water. Perhaps a day's walk from here, at least it will be, judging by the pace you usually walk at. This again. Keith grumbled. I am merely pointing out that if you walked faster, we would have been there by now, the dragon said. Three or four months ago, as a matter of fact. Keith gave his friend a grouchy look. You're welcome to go on ahead, he suggested. The dragon scratched behind his ear with a claw. You have proven useful these past few months. Besides, one more day won't hurt. Thanks. Keith said. By the way, it hasn't been several months, it's been a year. Then you are slower than I thought, the dragon said. Keith was, in fact, surprisingly adept at hiking for a man who had been born in the age of the automobile. Even so, the trip had been long. By Keith's reckoning, he had met the dragon somewhere in eastern Libya. Although it was difficult to distinguish one part of the desert from another, since then, they had trekked through parts of Tunisia, Algiers, Morocco, and Spain, before finally making their way to Brittany, where they hoped to find their way across the English Channel. In truth, Keith's pace did not slow them down as much as the constant human interference from one warring faction or another. Although the dragons certainly could have laid a scorched earth campaign to everything that stepped in front of them, that was clearly not the best way to go about traveling from one place to the next. Ultimately, their journey had taken a large amount of finesse. 
Usually Keith would end up explaining to one person or another that his large scaly friend was not here to conquer them no matter what the stories say. He did this in broken, half-remembered schoolboy Latin with the help of a lot of hand gestures. The dragon, in the tradition of magical creatures everywhere, could speak to and be understood by absolutely everyone. But when you are taller than a giraffe and can breathe fire, people are not usually interested in listening. It had been a long journey filled with many adventures, and during the quiet moments they'd had some time to talk about the things they'd done, and the people they'd known, and the woman they'd fallen in love with, once upon a time. Keith had talked about Alice at great length. A lot of the story hadn't made even the slightest bit of sense to the dragon, but the dragon was kind enough to listen. Keith tried to reflect on his wife warmly, but the plain and simple truth was that she had nearly killed him. No matter how positive a spin you put on the phrase, she didn't really mean to do it. Clinging onto a relationship like that doesn't make you look like a well-adjusted individual. Keith imagined that the dragon would not have a long list of dating stories, but it turned out there had been someone important. Her name was Jocelyn. She was the princess he had talked about. The dragon had spent much of her life hidden in the shadows, protecting her from a shadowy figure he referred to as the Black Knight. It seemed that the dragon and the knight had a history of some kind that the dragon didn't like to talk about. Both had done things that they regretted, and both had moments they could never walk away from. Over time, the dragon and Keith became great friends, and the journey westward was one of the greatest times of their lives. They talked about other things, too, the strange things that they had seen in their respective worlds. Keith was interested in the things the dragon had seen, which he had only heard about in fairy tales. Ogres, giants, elves, unicorns, witches, and, well, fairies. The dragon seemed to speak about these with a certain level of remorse. It seemed they had once been a part of this world, but weren't anymore. Keith wondered what had happened to them. The dragon didn't really seem to want to elaborate. The dragon, in turn, was interested to hear about all the things that hadn't come into existence yet, but were part of the world as Keith knew it. Automobiles, aeroplanes, telephones, and telegraphs were as exotic to the dragon as magic was to Keith. Keith remembered something that Alice had told him once, that all technology is indistinguishable from magic if viewed from a distance. He supposed that was true. It did seem that in some ways the more the world changed the more it stayed the same. There was still war, strife, and struggle, but also love, family, music, art, and poetry. You still had to take the good with the bad, no matter when you lived. It was a long, hard road back to England, but by the time they found their way to the English Channel, they both desperately wanted to find their way to the other side. It wasn't entirely clear what they were going to find there. Maybe nothing. Still, it was as close as either one of them were going to get to somewhere called home. Keith continued to squint at the horizon. While you've got your head up in the clouds, do you see any sort of dock or boat or something that might be able to get me across the channel? There's a fishing village, the dragon said. That isn't much more than a few small huts, but I can see some small boats in the background. A fishing village? Keith repeated. Are they Gauls or Romans? Gauls, I should think, the dragon said. They look poor. 
and would probably take a ferry ride in trade if the price was right. Only there's a problem. What's that? Keith asked. The dragon blew smoke out of his nostrils. Judging by the large bonfire they're building with the big stake in the middle, they appear to be on the verge of having a man burned alive. Keith quick nodded. Let's have a closer look, he said. One of the undeniable truths of history is that the changes made over the centuries make very little difference in the lives of average men and women until the invention of electricity. If you don't believe this, you may want to look up an incident from the early 21st century when a medieval farmer was pulled out of the ice in Scandinavia. He was wearing jeans and a t-shirt. Strictly speaking, the little stone village didn't look that much different than it would have in the year of 10,000 BC, except that the thatch roofs had become a little more ornate. It was small, gray, and looked like a hard place to live. It was right on the edge of the Atlantic Ocean, in a spot where a movie star would build a mansion 1,500 years later, but this mattered less than you think. Keith Quick and the dragon snuck up on the village very, very quietly which was difficult, because one of them was 15 feet tall. Still, they were old friends who had been on many adventures, and this is what they were good at. It didn't take long for Keith to notice that something was going on in the town square. He couldn't see what it was from his vantage point, but you could tell that there was something going on. The air was thick with the kind of murmur that implied that there was a large group of people nearby, and they were angry about the way the world worked. He moved closer, taking cover behind a stone hut. They were gathered around a solitary figure who was tied to a wooden pole. In my day, you would call this a lynching, Keith said, peeking around the corner. What do you think? the dragon asked. Witchcraft? I think he's wearing a necktie, Keith said. He was right. On top of a large pile of wood in the square was a young man, maybe twenty, tall with long black bangs and the sort of disturbed look that would probably be typical if you were about to be set on fire. Keith didn't recognize him, which would not be considered out of the ordinary if it weren't for the common bond between them. Although the black silk around the young man's neck was more of a cravat than a necktie, the point remained the same. The young man was wearing an accessory that would not come into fashion for another 1,300 years. He was either the most forward-thinking fashion designer in the history of France, an impressive feat, or Keith was staring at the first time traveler he'd seen in a year. A necktie, the dragon asked. Like a piece of rope around his neck? That would be a noose, Keith clarified. Not even an angry mob needs to kill a man twice. The necktie is a thing that young men wear when they head out into the world in search of a steady salary and an office with a corner window. I take it that he's one of yours, the dragon said. He's from this strange man-made world that you're always going on about. I'd say so, judging by the clothes, Keith said. If he stole them from someone else, he's getting a pretty harsh punishment. I suppose that you want to save him, seeing that he's one of yours. Would you want to leave him to burn if he wasn't? Fair enough, the dragon said. How do you want to get him out of there? Keith Quick thought about this. They're burning him at the stake for witchcraft. 
What do you say we show them some real magic? About the only convenient thing about being burned at the stake centuries before you're born is you don't need a translator. No matter where you are, the locals are screaming, and they're always screaming only one word. This particular angry mob was screaming combustio at the top of their lungs, which the young man didn't need translating. He didn't need to fall back on his Latin to know that the crowd was going to burn him alive. The young man had faced death before, back when he was at sea. Back then it was part of a grand adventure and it seemed exhilarating. This time the only thing he had to say about the experience was that there would be very little chance that he was going to be emotionally scarred by it later on. He was going to die and no one would ever know. He was dying almost a millennium and a half before he was born. His gravestone would be comically inexplicable if he had one. He supposed there probably wouldn't be much to bury. A man in a hood brought up a torch. The crowd had been whipped into a frenzy. The young man was pretty sure that if they didn't burn him to death, they would simply tear him to pieces. He'd never been a, much of a religious man, but he'd spent some time at university and he'd learned a few prayers. He thought today would be as good a day as any to recite one. He settled on an old Church of England verse. He got as far as have mercy on us according to our love before he started to lose focus. He was going to die horribly in unspeakable pain and there was nothing he could do. Suddenly a man ran up and cut through the crowd. He was an odd man, or at least he seemed odd to the young man about to be burned to a crisp. For that matter, he probably looked strange to the angry mob too. The odd duck was wearing what the young man would have described as a cow's hide jacket and had a strange hat that seemed to involve a pair of spectacles somehow. My lord, the man shouted as he came to the front of the crowd. The young man looked at him quizzically. He was almost as surprised by the fact that the strange man was addressing him as he was by the fact that the man was speaking English. Not old English either. This man was using the king's English or at any rate, General Washington's English, he sounded like an American. I... I beg your pardon, the young man stammered. My lord, the beast returns, the American shouted. He was waving his hands wildly. You must use your magic. Magic, the young man repeated. Although no one in the crowd could understand English, someone seemed to catch the gist of what the American was saying, because the word... Demonium came floating through the air. The American stepped past the man holding the torch and hopped onto the large pile of wood that was about to be used to kill the young man. He leaned in so close that he could have kissed him on the mouth. Just go with it, he whispered. The young man turned to the crowd and waved his hands over his head in a universal symbol of waving someone off. No demonium, heros draconum! He pointed behind the crowd. Draconum! What are you doing? The young man asked. The American stole just the slightest glance at him before turning around again. There was a sharply raised eyebrow that seemed to be implying that he either knew what he was doing or he had gone mad. The young man decided to assume that it was the former. Draconum! The American shouted, pointing overhead. Draco! Draconum! Of the myriad of things that the young man might have expected to happen next, 
A giant green dragon flying up from behind the small village was probably the absolute last one. Nonetheless, it was definitely a dragon, and it flew up into the air, letting out a cry that would rival a heavy metal concert being held at Krakatoa, if such a thing were possible. The dragon lifted its head and launched a fireball upwards in a manner that almost certainly would have been a code violation, even in this century. The crowd made a howling cry reminiscent of a donkey dying in the fifth act of an Italian opera. Everyone ran. Everyone, that is, except the American. Quick, the American said, spinning around. Quick what? The young man said. I can't move. The American began to pull at the ropes binding the young man. It's my name, he explained. Quick, Keith, quick. Although right now I'd suggest we use it as a verb and beat a hasty retreat. From which, the young man asked, the dragon or the angry mob? The dragon is a friend, Keith Quick said. An angry mob, though. That will kill you. How do you know that I haven't done something that would make this a fitting punishment, the young man said, kicking off the rest of his bindings. Not that I'm grateful, of course. You are wearing a necktie that you bought on Savile Row, Keith Quick pointed out, and I have an American accent, which I'm guessing you've probably noticed. I've been here for around 12 months, and you're the only person I've seen in a year who may have been to the present. If you can talk about Shakespeare for 20 minutes, then I don't care if you killed the town elder. Also, can you sail? The young man nodded. I was at sea, both man and boy. Right, we'd better find a boat then. My friend the dragon can distract them for a moment or two, but sooner or later they'll come back and look for you. We can talk about books on the way to England. The two men liberated a fish boat, and within the hour they were headed in the direction of the Atlantic Ocean, with a dragon floating gently behind them. I didn't get your name, Keith said. The young man pushed his overly long black bangs out of his eyes and stared into the setting sun. My name, he said, is Jack Cassidy. Hi, it's me again. My name is Dave. I am the creator of this podcast. Thanks for listening. I appreciate your support. If you like, you can leave a review and subscribe. I, I, I promise I'm really not going to read the reviews. I'm just way too anxious to do that kind of thing anymore. Uh, but if you enjoyed this so far, this is part of something bigger. You might want to check out my novel, The Time Travelers Resort and Museum, which tells the story from Helen's mother's point of view and has great pictures by Felix Eddy. Uh, that's it for now. Thanks so much. Next week, we're going to meet King Arthur.